0: God, thank you for Easter season. Thank you that we will rise. Thank you that because of what Jesus did for us, we have eternal life. That in this season, Father, just two weeks from Easter, in the midst of all that is around us and all that's about us, Father, help us to focus in these days on the gratitude for grace that will motivate us and change us and bless us and bless the world through us. Help us to understand that gratitude in a new way through this time in your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I do need to apologize for something. This is the closest to Texas Tech Red Raider red that I had. But to those of you that think this is an Aggie shirt, I guess, Michael, you can if you want. I guess that's all right. Yeah, that's right. But who's who's in the championship tomorrow? It's not, it's not A&M, is it? It's. Yeah, I, I just want to be clear on that. But be that as it may. So this is kind of a new whoop, Uh-oh, he's turning off the mic, turning off the, the images. So all right. Let's see. Here we go. That is Kyle Froelich. He's been in the news this week. Kind of an interesting story. He, uh, several years ago, was in severe kidney failure. They could not find an donor. Um, none of his family was a match. None of his close friends were a match. He was about to go on dialysis to try to save his life. And then a friend of his told a friend of his, a young lady named Chelsea, about his condition. She agreed to be tested. She was a perfect match. And so she donated one of her kidneys to Kyle. The surgery was a success. He began to return to health. They started dating, and three years later, they were married. Now, that's a way to meet your wife, right, is through (laughs) kidney donation process. Well, the reason they're back in the news is that the kidney that she donated to Kyle is now failing. He needs a kidney within a year, or he'll have to go back on dialysis. There are 100,000 people in America waiting on a kidney. He'll have a three- to six-year wait, and he can't wait that long. And what made me think about the story would be this. Imagine a scenario, just imagine a scenario, in which she gave her other kidney to Kyle. In that scenario, he would live, and she would die. Would he ever have reason to doubt her love for him? All right. So we're in the Easter season. We're taking steps towards the cross and the resurrection. You're familiar with what happened, and you know who was involved. So this year, we're looking at the whys. Last week, why did Jesus have to come in order to die? Next week, why did he have to die on the cross? The week after that, Easter, why did he have to be raised from the dead? Today, why did he have to die? You know that he died for our sin, but why did he have to do that? I assume you've forgiven people things they've done to you without somebody having to die, right? Right? I mean, if I bash into your car leaving the parking lot today, I hope no one has to die in order for you to forgive me. So why couldn't God just forgive us? We know he died for our sin, but why did he have to die for our sin? The answer to that question I've discovered this week is incredibly powerful and hopeful and grace-inspiring. So let's start with the text. We're in Romans chapter 5. Think of the last time you sinned against God. Why did he forgive you? Well, it's because of this. In Romans 5, we read in verse 6, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We could talk about that for hours. It's an amazing text. When it says at the right time, what it means is at the time when if he hadn't done it, it would be too late, is what the Greek means. At exactly the right moment. And not a moment too soon is the idea. Jesus came when there was universal roads to. There were universal roads through which to share the gospel. There was a universal language. There was universal hunger. There was a universal peace. He came at just the right time, and he came to die for the ungodly. No conditions. If you're ungodly, he died for you. No matter where you think you're on the scale. Even if you think, you, you think your sins are way over here and bad people are way over there, you're still on the scale, right? He died for thee, all of thee, with no exceptions, ungodly. That's why Jesus came. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Jen and I had dinner Friday night with a man who used to be on the Secret Service detail for President Ford. I've talked to him about this in the past. He's in the little Bible study I'm part of, and he'll tell you one of the first things you agree to do when you sign up to be on a presidential security detail is you agree to die for the president. That's just one of the things you agreed to do. That's kind of a not negotiable part of the deal. And so you could understand a secret service agent dying for a president. You could understand a soldier dying for a fellow soldier. But apart from that, maybe maybe a righteous person. For a good person, one would dare even to die, Paul says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that verse. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Before you had anything in you to deserve it, before you started coming to chapel, before you started reading the Bible or praying, before you ever trusted in Christ, before you gave a dollar to the kingdom, before you could do anything to earn it, while we were still sinners. The last time you think that God's love for you depends on your love for him, remember that verse. The last time you think that God measures you by what you do and God loves you more when you're good and loves you less when you're not, The next time you think you have to do anything to earn God's favor, remember that verse. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. The word justified is a legal term. You could say just as if I'd never sinned, is the idea. It's like you've been brought before the judge, and Jesus has so paid the debt that you now have no debt to pay. That's the idea. You're now completely justified. It's like you never owed the debt. It's like you never committed the sin. It's like it never happened. That's how it works because of Jesus' death. Now you've been justified by his blood. Now how much more we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So you knew that. I mean, in principle, you knew that Jesus came to die for your sin, and you understood in principle what Paul talks about here, right? That Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to. That he died to pay your debt. That he died in your place, on your cross, to purchase your salvation. We get all that. The background question is, but why? Why did he have to do that? As I said, you've forgiven people without somebody dying. I have forgiven people without somebody having to die. So why isn't God like us? Is the question. Why did Jesus have to die? The Bible says that God is love. He is love. No conditions. That's his nature. That's his essence. God is love. Well, if God is love, much more so than I am, and I can forgive somebody without somebody else having to die, why can't the God who is love even more do so? Well, the Bible also says that God is holy, holy, holy. Says that again in Revelation four eight, in Hebrew literature, repetition is emphasis. We would say holy, holier, holiest, to get to the comparative and the superlative. They repeat it to get there. Holy, holier, holiest. The only attribute of God repeated three times in Scripture is holy. God is holiest. Is the idea. The Bible says therefore that the place where God lives is perfect. In heaven, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So God's paradise is as perfect as he is. If God lets me in with my sin, it will no longer be a perfect paradise. If God would allow me into heaven with my sins intact, I would corrupt it. Mark Twain said he wouldn't join a church that would have him for a member, (laughs) you know, Somebody else said, I've found the perfect church, and someone else said, well, then you better not join it, you know? won't be perfect anymore. When I was a pastor, I would sometimes have to visit people in the hospital that had had a stem cell transplant. They were dealing with leukemia or something like that. So if I could, before I could go into an ICU room like that, isolation ward they're called, I had to wash my hands, had to wash my face, had to put on sterile garb, had to put on a sterile head covering, and wear a mask over my face. Because any germs I brought into that sterile room could kill the patient, is the idea. That's how heaven is. Heaven is so perfect, one sin, one sin would corrupt it. I don't know if you remember your first sin, but I remember mine. We were checking out. Mom had made Mark and me, my brother and me, come to the grocery store with her. And we were, always loved going to the grocery store as a kid. and Not really. And we're in the checkout line here. And she's writing the check over here. I didn't understand checks. I thought, that's so cool. You can just write on a piece of paper and it's money. How cool is that? You know, I didn't. Anyway. So she's writing this check and she's paying these groceries. And over here on the side is the stack of gum. You know, the checkout deal and the little things of gum there. And I just reached over and put one in my pocket. And walked out and never told anybody. I don't know if I've ever told anybody. You might be the first people I've ever told that to. Might be confessing my first sin for the very first time. Might be that with compound interest, Wrigley says, I owe them a whole lot of money now. I don't know. Hope they don't come. Maybe the statute of limitations has run out. I hope so. It didn't taste very good, that gum. You know? Odd. But I still remember that. First time that I know of anyway that I have in my memory an intentional, deliberate decision to do what I knew was wrong that would be enough to contaminate heaven, that by itself. And so somebody's got to pay this debt. Somebody's got to pay this penalty in order for my debt to be forgiven, in order for me to go into God's perfect paradise. And here's the problem. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. Now, why is that? That seems awfully unkind of God to decide that the Penalty for sin has to be death, but it's not God's choice. That's just how it has to work. You see, when we're in a relationship with God, only then are we connected to the source of life. When we cut that relationship, death is the inevitable result. It's like when you cut flowers and you put them in a vase and they're beautiful, but they're dying. You can't tell it in the picture, but they're dying, right? Because they're cut from their source of life. Every person you know who doesn't have a relationship with God through Christ is like a flower in a vase. They may look good, but they're dying. It's because they've been cut off from the only source of life there is. The only source of eternal life that exists is God. The only one who can give us eternal life with him in paradise is God. And sin cuts off the relationship with this perfect God. Even stealing a pack of gum cuts off that relationship with a perfect God. And so the wages, the consequences, the inevitable result of sin is death. That's why the Bible says, the soul who sins shall die. So here's God's dilemma. God loves us. God created us because he wanted to. God didn't make you because the world needed another person walking around on the planet, right? God made you because he wanted to. Because God wanted perfect, intimate relationship with you. That's why God made you. But you sinned someplace along the way. The Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the consequence of that sin is that it cuts us off from God. That's the debt. The only way God can get us into his perfect paradise is if somebody pays that debt. Well, the problem is you can't pay my debt because you owe your debt. If I'd never sinned, then I could pay your debt. I could die for your sin. I could pay the debt that is death for your sin if I'd never sinned, but I have my own debts. It's like you owe $100 and I only have $100. And I owe $100. Well, my $100 can't pay my debt and your debt. Somebody had to come along who was sinless, who could therefore die to pay the debt he didn't owe that we did. And that's what Easter is all about. That's what the cross and the resurrection are all about. The Bible says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so when Jesus died on the cross the only sinless person that's ever lived. He did that to pay the debt that he had to do that to pay the debt that we owed without which our sin would separate us eternally from God in eternal death. And that's why Jesus had to die. Does that make sense? He had to die to pay the debt for the sins we've committed so that we could be restored back to relationship with the Father. Now, let me say something real fast there, and then we'll get to some applications real quickly. Please don't let that cause you ever to think that that means that the son loves you more than the father does. All right? That the father hates you because of your sin and the way it separated you from God, and the son came along, and the son died in your place, so the father would have to take you back. I heard about a preacher who told the story like this. A woman's on her deathbed, and on this side is her husband, and on this side is her estranged son. They've been apart from years, and in her last act, she takes his hand and his hand and brings them together over her dying body and reconciles them, and that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's not true. The Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The cross was the father's idea as well as the son's idea. Please don't think that the Father doesn't love you because of your sin, but Jesus makes him take you back. Nothing like that. Jesus had to die to pay the debt for our sins so we could be reconciled to God. And that was what the Father wanted as well as the Son. We're going to say more about that in the Garden of Gethsemane next week. So what does all this mean for us? What does the fact that Jesus had to die mean for us? We've had a theological lecture here today. What does that mean for you personally? First of all, it means you can be forgiven. No matter what you've done. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Died for the ungodly. No matter what it is. Now you look like pretty respectable folk this morning. Just looking around here. I mean, you got up to come to a chapel service at the lake on a Sunday. That ought to count for something, right? But if you're like me, you've got stuff in your background you're really glad the rest of us don't know about. You've got stuff you're glad isn't up on the screen. You're probably carrying around guilt for something. A lot of some things, all of that can be forgiven today. Jesus' death paid for all of that, all of it. No matter what you've done, you probably, maybe, haven't been murdering Christians like Paul did, the apostle Paul, the author of half the New Testament. No matter what you think you've done or you have done, you probably maybe haven't denied Jesus three times before a serving girl as Peter did not long before he preached the Pentecost sermon, right? Maybe you haven't murdered anybody and fled from God for 40 years out in the desert like Moses. No matter, Maybe you haven't had an affair with Bathsheba and arranged for the death of her husband to cover the whole thing up like David, a man after God's own heart. No matter what it is, you can be forgiven. It's a gift you simply need to receive. Second fact... We should value ourselves as God does. God thinks you're worth the death of his son. God thinks you're worth the death of his son. And if you're the only person who'd ever sinned, he would do it all over again. That's what he thinks. So I read this morning that someone else is running for president. I've lost count by now of how many run and I didn't know the name of this person. The reason he's making the news is cuz he's being treated for cancer of some kind I think. But he says that won't hinder his ability to campaign for office and that's what made it a news story. So these days you've got to have something unusual to make the news that you're running for president. And it's not just that you're running for president. You've got to have something unusual in order to make the news story cuz so many people are running for president. So somebody's going to win. In two years, we're going to have a president in two years, whether it's President Trump or somebody else in the Republican Party or someone in the Democratic Party or whatever it is, we're going to have somebody else. And let's say it's you. Let's say it's you. And now you came back to chapel. You've won the election and now you're the president of the United States and now you've come back to chapel. You're probably going to be kind of a big deal here, right? If the president walks through the door with the Secret Service and all that kind of stuff, it's probably going to be something we'll remember. That's kind of probably a big deal. You may have met a president along the way. I've had the privilege of meeting a couple presidents over the years, and it's kind of a big deal to meet somebody like that, right? Or imagine you could go over and talk to the Queen of England today. That'd be kind of a big deal, wouldn't it? That's nothing compared to you. Don't mean to be unkind about this, but the value our culture assigns the president or the governor or the mayor or the Queen of England or whatever it is is nothing compared to what the God of the universe assigns to you. Because he says you're worth the death of his son. See yourself like that. Love yourself like that. Give your guilt to him. That's that first part. And receive the love that he offers you by grace. Because the cross makes that possible. And then last, serve him with the gratitude that he deserves. Don't serve him so he'll love you. Serve him because he loves you. Don't read the Bible and pray and give and witness and share and worship so that you'll earn points with God. Do that not so he will accept you, but because he does. That's the greatest motive there is, is gratitude for grace. Is that why you're serving him today? Is that why you're here today? A gratitude for grace. Just a moment, we're going to take the supper of our Lord. So let me show you where it happened, and then we'll be done, or at least the closest thing we have to it. We know that Jesus had the last meal with his disciples in what the scriptures call the upper room. Well, here's the upper room as it is today. It's a second-story room. It's very near the area where we believe the actual meal took place. This was built by the Crusaders a 1,000 years ago. It is not the room, all right? It was built by the Crusaders a 1,000 years ago. But it's in the location where we believe the supper took place, and why do we think that? Well, there's several reasons. I have to do with inscriptions and ancient tradition and all of that, but one of them is because of this. That's the doorway that you take to go into the upper room right there, and then here's the area where the crusaders built, then it was turned into a mosque, and then in 67 it was made an area anyone can come in. That's the carried door to come in. I took the picture from this side facing there. The door to leave is right over there. All right, there's the... Exit door. There's the entrance door. There's the exit door. And right there is the reason we think this room is in the place, the area of the first upper room, and here's why. Here's a close-up, okay? That's the pillar right there I'm talking about, right by the door, and that's a close-up of it. What you're looking at, it would be hard to tell, that's a pelican, and those are baby pelicans, And the tradition was, it wasn't that they thought this actually necessarily was true, but the tradition was that in times of horrific drought, when there was no food or water to be had, in desperation, the mother pelican would allow the babies to eat her flesh and drink her blood. And that's what's depicted there. That's a first century sculpture used as a symbol for the Lord's Supper when Jesus gave his flesh and his blood, as it were. And that was found in that immediate area, which is why the crusaders built the upper room right there and put it on the pillar that you see on your way out. To remind us that someplace in this area, in an upper room like this one, Jesus gave his body and his blood for us. How do you respond to such grace except with gratitude? Let's pray. What in your past is bothering you today? Would you take it to the cross and leave it there and know that Jesus died for it and the debt is paid and the sin is forgiven? Claim that grace right now. Now, whatever in your life is causing you not to love yourself, would you take that to the cross? Whatever failures, whatever disappointments, whatever frustrations, whatever hindrances, whatever limitations you have, take that to the cross. And see yourself as loved the way God loves you. And then last, would you tell the Lord that wherever he leads this week, you'll go. And whatever service motivated by gratitude he asks, you'll give. If it's a need to meet, if it's a witness to share, if it's a resource of time or money to give, whatever it is, will you tell him that this week you will serve him out of gratitude for grace? Father, I join these prayers out of gratitude for such grace that I know I don't deserve, but that I can receive. As we take this supper, help us to do so. As though we're in that first upper room, recognizing that in time of spiritual drought, you gave yourself for us. We receive this gift in Jesus' name.